0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. How are you? It's middle of the week. (laughs) We're not going to be enthusiastic about this. That's all right. Hey, um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to find our launching point. Uh, in that place. Let's start with a little bit of prayer. Lord, uh, throughout the ages, the sinful heart of man has used the truth of your word to try and twist it and conform it to their own agenda. And Lord, there's no place in scripture that I fear that as much as our, our time together tonight. So Lord, I pray that you would use your word and that with unfiltered eyes we would see the majesty of Jesus his heart for us Lord the glory of the gospel and the need for us to fight like Jesus did so God lead us by your spirit help us to be submitted to and surrendered to your work and to your word We put ourselves at your feet, Lord, and ask you to speak to us by your spirit. Awaken our hearts, God, that we might receive from you instruction and direction. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Fight like Jesus. We're in our Live Like Jesus series. We've been tracking with it for about five weeks now and exploring what it means to, to imitate, to look like, to, to uh, live like Jesus lived. Now, we planned all of these topics in advance, but then, and then you know uh, I got assigned a topic, and Sam got assigned a topic, and Jeff got assigned a topic, and we just sort of did that. Willy nilly, I know that you guys would love to believe that behind the scenes there was prayer and fasting that went into picking those names, but the truth of the matter is, uh, it was just a very practical decision that needed to be made uh, as to who would teach what. And interestingly enough, you know, um, this topic fell to me. And initially, I thought, oh, this is perfect for, you know, a guy who loves to do, like, uh, you know, pastoral care for God's people, and a lot of the work that I do is, is helping settle conflict and mediate difficult decisions, and, and, and the idea of fighting like Jesus, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll just apply this sort of uh, relationally, emotionally, and we'll pull some, some principles out. It'll be, it'll be great. And then two weeks ago, something hit the news that uh, made me think of it in broader terms, and that is the shooting that took place in Las Vegas. And what do I do about that? How do we respond to the evil in this world, to the conflict that is raging all around us? And how does the life and character and nature of Jesus inform our attitude as believers? As we think about these things. You see, the truth is, we live in a world of conflict. Now, throughout the ages, there have been different approaches to dealing with or to not dealing with the conflict around us. The first approach, the one that I would say uh, people often use, is what I'm going to call the passive approach Now it's taken different forms throughout the ages. Its adherents uh, produce philosophical approaches to life and conflict, uh, things like fatalism. Fatalism is this idea that, you know, everything's sort of predetermined, and, and it's just going to happen, however it's going to happen, and you're just sort of subject to history sort of unfolding. Another sort of passive approach is asceticism. And this is is the approach that says the world and things in it are are basically bad. They're evil at some level. And so then the solution then is is to be like the ostrich and sort of stick your head in the sand to find some place to hide, to remove yourself from the evil. And if you can hide from it... You can somehow escape the effects of it, and that is somehow preserving to you. And so asceticism says that the world and the things in it are bad, and the solution then is to isolate yourself from the world and its ways and just sort of wait out your time on earth. The the third passive approach is apatheticism. This position is a position of hopelessness. It essentially says, listen, nothing is really going to change. So why try? Why do anything? The people that comprise this portion of the population are they're sometimes unengaged, like they're they just like are passive and apathetic towards life in general. And so they, they distance themselves emotionally from the trauma of things that happen, like Las Vegas. Or the hurricane and its effect on Houston or Puerto Rico. Or the day-to-day influx of of news that we get constantly that comes up in notifications on our phone. That comes up on on newsreels and on the television of the suffering and the plight of humans around the world. They just sort of say, I just can't really engage with that. They sort of unplug from it and, and live life at a distance from those realities. Or sometimes, it's not that they're necessarily unengaged, it's sometimes that they're disillusioned. That is, that they, they, they have uh, this belief in, 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 at some level that uh, if there's nothing I can do to change anything, why even try? I have no power. I can't make a difference. There's nothing that I can do. And they prefer, rather than to fail, to never have tried at all. So this is the passive approach. The, the second side of what I'm going to call the spectrum is was what I would call the aggressive approach. Now, no matter what form of passivity you adopt, the end result is inactivity. When it comes to conflict... And the brokenness of the world around us, when you fall into this passive stance or this passive approach, the end result is inactivity. The world around you is unaffected and unchanged. And even worse than that, evil itself is unrestrained. And passivity is likely to lead to greater victimization. So other people react against the passivity. They say, no, no, no. The the solution is the aggressive approach. Often in reaction to a a lack of care about the world, uh, for the real conflict that we suffer, people will swing to the other side of the pendulum, to a more combative posture. And this combative posture, uh, the aggressive approach, uh, has several sort of subcategories or or byproducts or philosophies that it produces. You see it reflected in society in in something called authoritarianism. Authoritarianism. Now, authoritarians offer the solution uh, to the problem of conflict in the world and evil in the world by saying, what we need to do is control it. We need to find some way to, to control the the evil that is happening, the, the bad that is happening. Now, this can be found in political strategies. It can be found in religious communities. It can be found in social structures, within a society, within a culture. And the basic idea is in order to stop the bad from happening, you need to control the outcome. And now the great blind spot of authoritarians... The, the the real struggle is that sometimes they're the problem <laughs> right sometimes they go okay there's a real problem with the world and so i got to control it. and and the, the tighter that they clamp down the worse the problems get you guys remember uh of mice and men Do you you remember the character in there, Lenny? He's just like a a huge guy, Lenny, and he's he's slightly handicapped. He's very slow, and and he finds some mice in the field. That's where the title of Mice and Men comes from. And he loves the mice because they're soft, and they're really, really cute, and he's like petting the mice. I love the mice, and I love the mice, and I love the mice, until they're just bloody mush in his hands. See, that's the tendency of the authoritarian. They say, let's just control the evil, and they just clamp down, clamp down, clamp down until they're the problem. Now, the flip side of that is that when this is applied to a political system, you get things like dictatorships. When it's applied to religion, you get things like radicalism, Right, you get the uh, the guys say, with the signs that say, you know, God ho- hates homosexuals, and the and the religious right that gets really out there, or you or, or, or radical Islam and their war against the West. You see it reflected in society in in, in a variety of ways. When it's applied to a relationship, you get abuse, right? That is, I'm afraid of what you might do. I'm afraid that you're going to cause pain or hurt or do some evil, so I'm going to clamp down on you and control the outcome so I don't get hurt. The second is is the flip-flop reaction to that, and that is anarchism. Anarchism is a reaction to the authoritarian control, but ironically, it reacts in the same exact approach. It still uses aggressiveness. Now, anarchism is a violent reaction against any and all forms of perceived control or authority. It takes an an active stance in combating all forms of authority. And the problem, of course, is that you become the ultimate authority, right? Right? whatever you feel like is oppressing you, you push back against it, and sooner or later, the rights of the individual intersect with the rights of another individual, and then it's a battle of the wills. Who will overcome who? It's the chaos of anarchy. And when you become the ultimate authority in a society, in a religious community, or a social group, Your preference overrides, it trumps the care of others. So anarchy is sort of the other side of the spectrum. So you have these two approaches, the passive approach, and then you have the aggressive approach. Now, each of these approaches are like, two ends of a spectrum. And what I'm going to argue from the life of Jesus is that somewhere in between the passive approach and the aggressive approach is what I will call the assertive approach. The assertive approach. The passive approach to the issue of conflict or the problem of evil says, essentially, you can step on me out of apathy or fatalism or sort of a let-it-be style of asceticism. It says, okay, go ahead, and my rights are secondary. They don't really matter. Just do whatever you want. Go ahead, and you can step on me. The aggressive approach to conflict and evil in the world says, The way to fight is through authoritarianism or anarchism. It says, I'll step on you. I'm going to trump you in some way or at some level. And my will is what reigns and what is is king. But what we see in the life of Jesus is the approach that says, I'll step in. For you. I'll step in for you. Jesus never shied away from conflict out of cowardice. He never said, Oh, that's too messy. I just (laughs) don't want to get involved. He never backed off of those that were in need. He stepped up to defend his people, his disciples, the poor, the powerless, the widows. The accused was never afraid to step in for someone else. At the same time, though he was willing to step in for others, he was also willing to lay down his own rights in merciful preference for others. He stood his ground for others and then gave up his rights for others. In other words, his governing motivation for when to step in and take action or when to let go of his own rights was his preference and his love for other people. That was the deciding factor. Do I stand and fight or do I let go of my rights and suffer a wrong? What do I do? The guiding principle for Jesus is his preference and love for other people. The book of James tells us what kind of conflict is ultimately unhealthy. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says this, What causes quarrels? What causes these fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. And so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. Here's what he's saying. Listen. The ultimate source of all conflict and all fighting and all evil in the world is selfish motivation. It's me first. It's my desires first. It's what I want first. So in our time together tonight, I'm going to make a few claims that will help to clarify what I believe the Bible to be saying regarding Jesus Conflict and the battle of evils. So we're going to start. Just I want, I want to read something. Matthew chapter sixteen. We're going to pick it up in verse thirteen. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" And they said, "Some say John." The Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, the confession that, that I'm the Christ, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on the earth shall, shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on the earth shall be loosed. In heaven. Listen, Jesus said on the foundation of the confession that I am the Christ, I'm going to build my church, and then what will happen? What did he say would happen? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, quick question Do gates form their own military? And it start attacking people. No. That's not what happens. See, in those days, you had a city that was surrounded by walls. And then to get past those walls, you had gates. And and so what's he saying? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Who is doing the attacking? The church is. Right? There's an active and fighting stance that Jesus takes against the evil in the world. It is not passive, it is not overly aggressive, but it is assertive of the authority that Jesus carries as the one who sits on the throne that rules the universe. He uses that authority and he uses it through the people. Of God. Now, let's break this down a little bit. So here's a couple, th- three things that I want to say. Uh, I'm going to defend sort of the top portion here, and then I'm going to break down kind of these three points. The first one is Jesus is a fighter who fights. Okay? Now, maybe some of you grew up with the same kind of ideas about Jesus that I grew up with, which was that he was like, he was like the people out in Tequilma. At Sunstar, who, you know, are just passive, hippie people who just they grow their hair out and go around shirtless with body paint on most of the time, and they just are peace, love, and and and, and bliss all the time. Say, hey man. Maybe maybe that's your idea, your your thoughts regarding Jesus, but it might surprise you in reading the Bible actually how a how completely the opposite of that, that Jesus really is. Now, he loves peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. But he's not passive in dealing with evil. Jesus is a fighter who fights. And then I want to say he fights for the right reasons, with the right enemies, and with the right weapons. He fights for the right reasons, with the right enemies, and with the right weapons. So Jesus is a fighter. There's no question, in my mind at least, that Jesus was a fighter. For all the people that think Jesus was a pacifist, I'd like to remind you that the same Jesus that incarnated himself as the Babe of Bethlehem, to enter the conflict of the world, came for the purpose of making war. That was the reason he showed up. Let me read to you what 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was... Ready? Listen to this. To destroy the works of the devil... It reminds me of of this guy right here. There's this scene in Braveheart. It's one of my favorites. Where William Wallace shows up and there's a bunch of Scotsmen. Who are lined up in battle array and the English are on the other side. He gives this rousing speech and... He ends the speech by saying something to the effect of, you know, you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom. And he's riding his horse and it's like super epic scene. The music is building. Right. And then and then it shows the English on the other side. And they're like, well, should we send over our the terms of surrender so that they can surrender? Obviously, they're outgunned, outmanned. Right. And. And so some Scottish guys who are on that side who are leaders of their specific Scottish hordes are like, well, let's go make peace too. So they go out to meet the envoy and William Wallace is on the side with his buddies and and he starts to ride out there as well. And they say, hey, what are you going to do? He says, I'm here to pick a fight. I'm here to pick a fight. Jesus' arrival here on earth was an insertion behind enemy lines. It was a declaration of war on the God of this world. It was a shot across the bow to the one who had held captive all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve since the fall in the garden. He came for the purpose Of conflict. Jesus put it this way in, in another place. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace. But a sword. And as the gospels unfold to us, the life of Jesus. You see conflict all throughout that requires Jesus to take a stand against what is evil, oppressive, and wrong. Let's just walk through it. First off, you have the incarnation. At the very birth of Jesus, there sits Herod. And Herod is worried about what? His kingdom. Well, Oh, I've heard that the Jews have this promised king who's going to come, this Messiah, this deliverer, and what about my kingdom? And he's concerned about that. And, and from the birth of Jesus, the moment he comes out of the chute, Herod sends soldiers to go and kill all of the infants in the town that he was born in, in Bethlehem. It was a battle for a kingdom. In the temptation... We see Jesus lock horns with the prince of darkness himself, with Satan. And he's in a battle with Satan. When it comes to demon possession, you see Jesus interacting with those who are possessed of devils and setting them free with absolute authority because he's in a battle with demonic oppression in the world. In the temple, you see Jesus methodically, premeditatedly, grab up something, cords, something. Say, hey, Peter, Peter, you know, hold the end of this. And he just starts braiding. Peter's like, what, what is he doing here? Pretty soon, Jesus gets it to the place he wants it. All right, it's time to do business. Boom! He just kicks a table over. Money goes flying. He begins yelling at people and whipping men. Driving them from the temple. Absolutely a warrior and a man. And what is he so combative about? What is he so upset about? He's in a battle with religion People are coming to draw near to God and they're being taken away from God and removed from God and it's turned into a den of thieves rather than a house of prayer and he is at war with religion. In the miracles, we see that Jesus is in a battle against human suffering. In his teaching, we see that he's in a battle with truth. At Gethsemane, as he kneels and prays all night and drops of blood come out of his pores. We see that he's in a battle with surrender. At the cross, he's in a battle with sin. As he says to the father, give me the cup, I'm ready. At the tomb, he's in a battle with death. We see him after that. Actually, he shows up again in the book of Acts. You remember that? Where he meets a man named Paul, and he's a battle in a battle for Paul's life and salvation. In the epistles, he's battling for the church. He's like, you're my bride. Don't get polluted. Don't get taken away from me. Don't give your affection to another. You're my bride, and you alone love me alone. And that's the way this works and he pleads with the church for purity and the preservation of the gospel. And at the return of Jesus, we see that he is in a battle with rebellion and that all of the earth will come under his authority in that final showdown. Paul sums up the conflict of Jesus In Colossians 2, in reference to the cross and the gospel, he says this, having been buried with him in baptism, this is Colossians 2, for those of you who are note-takers, chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and in other words, not a part of God's covenant people, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. And he's, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. Now check this out. And he disarmed... The rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Here's what God was doing through Jesus He was triumphing over the, the powers of this world. Spiritual. Rulers and authorities and principalities. He was showing, you don't have control. You think you have control, but I have control. It was a reminder to them of their final and coming defeat. So we see that Jesus... Is a fighter. But listen, Jesus fights for the right reasons. Now, having said that Jesus is a fighter, it would be foolish to leave it open-ended. That's where you get really weird, uh, you know, uh, ideas about using the authority of God in some sort of fleshly way, as though you can walk around just slapping people on the forehead and doing different things to, to try and make everything better in their life. It doesn't work like that. Okay, so let's talk about the kind of authority that Jesus had, the way that he fought. Be foolish to leave it open-ended and not talk about what his motivation for fighting was in the first place. So there's two things that run like a thread through the entirety of Jesus' life and conflict. This battle, this fight that he was in. When he chose to engage in battle, he was motivated by these two things. There were two things that motivated his willingness to engage in conflict. What are they? What are those two things? First of all, the glory of God. And second of all, the good of others. The glory of God and the good of others. Grab your Bibles and open up to John chapter 12. Let's take a look at something that Jesus said. John chapter 12, verses 27 through 30. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Here's the reason I came here. Here's the reason for the conflict. Here's the reason for my crucifixion and all that is about to happen and my wrestling with Satan and sin and death. Here's what's motivating that. You ready? Father, glorify your name. The glory of God was his motivator. Father, glorify your name and then A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it thunder. Another said, an angel has spoken. And then Jesus answered and said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. In other words, I want you to know why I'm about to do this. It's the glory of God. You see, every stand that Jesus took was for the glory of God. Every battle he engaged in was for the glory of God. It was not selfish motivation. It was not selfish ambition. It was for God's glory to be revealed in the stand that he takes. So we just went through this list. Let's look back at it again. How was God glorified in each of those conflicts that we lifted, that we listed? In the incarnation, the battle of kingdoms, God glorifies his eternal kingdom. In the temptation, the battle with Satan, it glorifies God's holiness. In his wrestling with those that are possessed, this battle with demons, it glorifies God's authority. In the temple, the battle with religion, it glorifies God's reality. You can't come to him fakely, nor should you prevent others. You have to come as you are. He wants the real you every time, only, and no substitutes. In the miracles, in his battle with suffering, it glorifies God's empathy and his heart towards those who are hurting. In the teaching, in his battle with the truth, it glorifies God's wisdom. In Gethsemane, in the battle with surrender, it glorifies God's trustworthiness. As he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. At the cross, in his battle with sin, it glorifies God's redemption. At the tomb, in his battle with death, it glorifies God's victory. At Paul's conversion, and in the battle with Paul, it glorifies God's grace that even an enemy of Jesus can be saved. In the epistles, in the battle for the church, it glorifies God's gospel at work. He is preserving his people. And in the return... And his battle with rebellion, it glorifies God's absolute sovereignty in that he won't allow the world to rebel forever. And so we see that there are reasons that Jesus entered into conflict. There are reasons that he fought. The first reason that he would enter into a fight, enter into a battle, was for the glory Of God. Now, another guiding principle that informed where and when Jesus would step into the fray and engage in conflict was that Jesus fought for the good of people, for the good of others. Flip back over to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. We're going back to the, the book of Luke. The very beginning, chapter 4, where we get a look at Jesus' first sermon. It's the first sermon that Jesus ever gave in the Gospels. And it was at Nazareth, which was his hometown. And Jesus uses this occasion to talk plainly about his mission and his ministry. Now listen to what he said in Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, everything that I just read, it's happening right now. I've come. For this express purpose, to set the captives free, to care for those that are oppressed, to bring liberty. You see, Jesus came to fight for the good of others. It was not for his own benefit. If anything, Jesus laid down his own rights for the sake of defending and fighting for others. Now, if you think about it, this is the same example. That is followed by our police, by our firefighters, by the military. What is it that they sign up to do? They sign up to protect and serve. To protect and serve. Jesus sets the standard for what it means to care about other people. He says, I came for this purpose to protect those who are being abused, who are held in captivity, who are enslaved, to care for them, to watch out for them. I have authority to do that, and I'm going to do that. I came for that purpose. All of Jesus' battles for people... We were aimed at protecting them or serving them in some capacity. We could go back through that same list again and we could say, okay, now, how did Jesus protect people and serve people? And every single one of those things on that list would come up again. You go, oh man, the reason he was fighting was not for himself, it was for me, it was for you, it's for believers all around, it was for the people around him. He didn't fight for himself, he fought for others. He fought for the glory of God. Okay, so, so Jesus is a fighter, right? He's a fighter. And he, he fights for others, for the glory of God, not for himself, and for the good of others. But Jesus also fights the right enemies. He fights the right enemies. Let's be clear that Jesus knew who his enemies were. The ethic of loving your enemies doesn't mean that you, that you have to let injustice somehow reign, that it goes unpunished. doesn't mean that you can pretend somehow that the fall did not happen, that sin is not real, that the world is not broken. It doesn't mean that there aren't real problems to solve and real justice to dispense. It means that Christians, like Jesus, should know who and what they are really fighting Jesus focuses his attack at the root and not the fruit. At the cause and not the symptom. Notice the way that Jesus puts it while he's engaged in conflict with some religious leaders over their opposition to him. Let me read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. John 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 43 through 45. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Does that sound like he's picking a fight? You bet. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and it does and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him and when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies but because i tell you the truth you don't believe me listen there's two enemies of christ that he names in this passage what enemies does jesus fight The first one is, Jesus fights lies. Jesus fights lies. And secondly, Jesus fights Lucifer. So Jesus fights lies. Listen, all throughout the teaching of Jesus, what is he doing? He's combating lies with truth, grounded in the scriptures, grounded in the word of God. I I got into this really interesting discussion about abortion recently. I was talking about... Abortion was somebody who was sort of critiquing the Christian perspective. And they said, well, I, I don't think that's right. What about the mom? What, do you, what about her? You know, what if she's been raped or, or something like this has happened? I said, I, I hear that. That's awful. It's absolutely horrendous that sin brings about the kind of damage and destruction that it is. And I have compassion on the mom. You know who else I have compassion for? The baby... The person, the individual who is growing inside of her. Well, I just feel like that's wrong, this person said. And I said, based on what? Based on what? What are you arguing from? Some sort of internal unction? Where is your anchor to truth? What are you reasoning from? Emotion? I just feel like this is That doesn't make sense. Now, that same baby that's inside the womb of that mother, if I, if I take it out of the womb and it's, it's born into a hospital and it's sitting there in an incubator as a premature infant, which, by the way, they can live now with assistance easily after the first trimester and as early as, I think it's 12 weeks. That's incredible. Is I'm off, uh-huh. I can tell. Well, how, how many weeks is it? Tell me. It's, it's early, early on. When, while they're still, the, five, it's five weeks? 25. 25. Okay, 25. Still, it's early on. Early, early on. I know that they have their own heartbeat, their own blood type. They dream at eight weeks, they suck their thumb. That's incredible. Now, think about that. I, I take that baby, I put it in an incubator, it's 25 weeks. Still, well before the time that most abortions happen in this world. And if a gunman walks in and kills that infant in the incubator, it's just moved. It just moved from one location to the next. The gunman is guilty of murder. Now, tell me, does that, that, that life matter? Absolutely, that life matters. Does location make the difference? No, it doesn't. So while I have compassion on the one, I have compassion as well on the other. You see, there are lies that the enemy is perpetrating on God's people and on society and the world that are meant at, to erode the gifts of life and joy. There are lies. Some of those lies are private lies. These are the lies that we believe because we want to. They're the lies that keep us captive to sin. They're lies like, God doesn't really care. It's not that big of a deal. It's not really hurting anybody else. I can stop whenever I want. I'll I'll be happy if I... I can make it on my own. I, I, I just pull myself up by my bootstraps. Or lies like I'm... I'm unlovable, and I'm robed in shame, and I'll never get rid of it. Or lies like I'll never be free. Jesus came to bust apart those lies with the truth. So there are private lies, lies we believe as individuals, and then there's public lies, lies that are perpetrated upon the world. Lies like this. If we if we just elect the right person or or have the right government, the world will be a better place. Or that something temporary can somehow make me eternally happy. The new iPhone X, that new car, that house, that income level, that tax bracket, that wife, those kids. Lies like, the world has always been this way. It'll, it'll never change. That's not what the Bible says. It's headed for a change, a big one. Lies like, well, we can fix ourselves. If we just pass the right laws. Lies like, true freedom means casting off restraint and doing whatever it is that you want. Lies like just work harder and be better. These lies are strongholds by which our enemy enslaves people and holds them captive to his will. And Jesus came to expose and to fight those lies with the truth. The private lies and the public lies, he came to destroy them. And Jesus came to fight Lucifer. Isn't it interesting that, that the fall was not the first sin? Now, it's the first sin committed by humanity, but before that time, there was another fall that took place a fall that affected the hosts of heaven. And before the fall of the angels, there was another fall that took place, and that was the choice of rebellion in the heart of Satan himself, in the heart of one being named Lucifer. And like a virus, that sin of pride, fed by the idea that something created could somehow become the uncreated God's equal. That virus was planted in the heart of other angels and spread to them. It was planted in the heart of Adam and Eve and has since spread to the world. Its implications have been huge. It's the cause of all suffering, all death, and all the evils of the world. And the Bible tells us at the end of the age, God will not only eradicate sin from the hearts of his people through the resurrection of the dead, but that he will also punish the one whom he calls, in John's gospel, the father of lies and the murderer. Jesus is at war with Satan. So he knows his enemies. Jesus fights with the right enemies. And listen, Jesus fights with the right weapons. How does he deal with his enemies? How does, he, how does he fight against them? He fights, first of all, with shared truth, with shared truth. And second of all, with shared authority. Jesus spent the majority of his energy in the Gospels proclaiming the way that things really are. This is truth. You have heard it said, but this is true. You think that this is true, but this is true. He didn't mince words to his disciples or to the crowds, to the religious leaders of the day, or even the political rulers to, to whom he said to one of them, Pilate, you'll remember this. He said, you would have no authority at all unless my father had given it to you. John 19, 11. So even to the political authorities, he said, hey, you, you think you have authority. You don't have authority. There is a, a higher court of authority that I'm responsible to. You wouldn't have any authority at all if it wasn't for my father giving you that authority. And you are accountable for how you use that authority. So shared truth, right? Right? And shared authority. How's this authority thing work? Is is it just like an abstract concept? Well, let, let me give you three spheres of authority that God shares with mankind. You ready? The first one is shared authority in the home. The second one is shared authority in the church. And the third one is shared authority in society. So in the home, it works like this. The head of the home is supposed to lead by example. Here's what that means. For you dads, for you husbands, for you leaders in your home, this is what that means. The head of the home leads by example. If I want my wife to be a prayer warrior, what do I need to do? Demonstrate what that looks like through my prayer life. If I want her to find her roots in the truth of God's word, what do I need to do? Find my roots in the truth of God's word. If I want her to be forgiving and compassionate, then what must I be? Forgiving and compassionate. You see, in the home, authority works like this. It's instruction and example And discipline administered through loving parents or through a loving husband. And God dispenses to leaders in the home a level of shared responsibility. He says, I'm going to exercise my authority and I'm going to do that through you. So be the example. In the church. That is that the leadership of the church is leading by example. If you want your church to pray, you pray. You want your church to evangelize and share the gospel. You share the gospel and you evangelize. You want them to take the word of God seriously. Then you take it seriously. And you lead by that example. It's instruction and loving example and discipline administered through loving leadership. And lastly, in society, that is, the leadership of the nation is to lead by example. God shares that authority with them. And that through their example and through their instruction and discipline and through their care for their people, they would administer the authority of God in caring government. So here's how that works out. When when you read in Exodus chapter 22 verse 2, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck by a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. In other words, if a guy defends his home, somebody breaks in, he defends his home and his kids, he's not guilty for taking the life of another person because he has protected his family. Matter of fact, God would say that's a, a wise use of the authority that he has given you to protect your family. You're not guilty in that instance. It means that God intends that we should protect our homes and our families from lies, from the enemy, and from the father of lies who uses people to wound and hurt those that we care about. It means in Proverbs, excuse me, it means in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, when Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that God will wants us as the church to care about a lost and dying world and that he shares his authority with us that we might save those who are perishing and that we're responsible for how we use that authority. It means in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12, If you falter in a time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those that are being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards the slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? In other words, if you see evil happening and people being oppressed and you do nothing about it as a nation, Will not God repay? I've given you my authority in a society to protect the weak and defenseless among you. And you're responsible for the authority and how you use it. You see, we are dual citizens. We are waiting for that coming kingdom in which the God of righteousness will fully rule the earth. And until then, we're living with the ethic of God's kingdom in a fallen world. It means when some idea or enemy is attacking your marriage, the kids that God has given you, the church that he shed his blood for, or a nation that is helpless, that we have to follow the example of Jesus, that we have to fight like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this reminder. For those of us who in here have been passive, God, help us to repent. For those of us who have fallen into that category of being aggressive and misusing authority in ways that do not honor and reflect you, forgive us and make us to repent. May we be assertive with the truth that exposes lies and with the authority that you've given us to care for those among us who are unprotected. Give us wisdom to know the difference, Lord, and to walk in your footsteps. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.